Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to be together as a part of your family. Lord, we each bring different concerns and issues to church today. Lord, a lot of things have happened this week in various arenas of our lives, and yet we gather here and we want to focus on you. So I pray that you would help us to set aside distractions, the things that would cause our minds to wander, the things that would distract us, the things that Satan would use to take us away from what you intend for us to get from being together today. I pray for Mike as he brings the word to us. I thank you for the faithful men that you've given us at Lakeside that can bring the word, and I pray that you would empower him by your spirit to teach us clearly and that we would have ears to hear. And then I pray for Pastor Steve, that he would continue to recover from this knee surgery and that you would keep his body strong so he can continue to preach the word for many years to us as we need to hear your truth. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to teach from my iPad today. I'm trying to, trying to get up with Steve and Joe and all these people that are more technologically advanced than me. So I'm going to have my notes here, but be patient with me if I scroll too far or whatever. It's, it's a lot harder than it, than it seems. Our text this morning is going to be Philippians chapter 1, if you want to be turning there. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26. I've told you before, when I was a young man, especially a teenager, that I was very driven to be successful. I used to read a lot of self-help books, books like How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I read books like The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck, Awaken the Giant Within by Anthony Robbins, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. These were all the kind of books I read. My favorite one, I think, was probably See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. All of these men were very successful by the world standard. As you read these books, you'll find that there are a few things that they have in common. In fact, actually, there are books written on the subject of what all these men had in common. And the main theme that prevails is that they had a driving purpose in life. They had an overwhelming passion for what they did. They had a reason for jumping out of the bed in the morning, usually very early in the morning. And they had a focus and a mission. And they put blinders on and they went after it with everything they had. I don't condone everything about these men's lives. I won't recommend their books. Most of them are not believers. Some of them are. But I use this as an example because there's some truth in what they say. I don't think we can deny that to be a very successful person in any venture requires purpose and passion. And one man, based on a Christian standard and and ministry, in the context of ministry, there's one man that stands out to me in that context, and that's the Apostle Paul. A case could be made that he was the most successful servant of Christ ever. He accomplished more than anyone I can think of in ministry. As you know, after Paul was saved, he became a missionary to the Gentiles and he made three long, hard missionary journeys in which he planted churches throughout the Roman Empire. He preached and he gave encouragement to the early Christians wherever he went. Out of the 27 books in the New Testament, Paul's credited with writing 13 of them. 
He was active well up into his older age until he was martyred for his faith in about 64 or 65 A.D. I think it's safe to say that the Apostle Paul had a purpose and a passion that was unequivocally clear, and it permeated everything he did, and it gave him hope in the darkest of times. So I've entitled this message, The Secret of Paul's Success. And our text again is Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 26. And if you look at that, and if you glance through it, you could sum up this section of Scripture with verse 21, which says, To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a very well-known verse. We'll get into it a little deeper in a moment. But first, I want you to take a quiz. I want you to imagine that there's a the big chalkboard or blackboard up here behind me, and on it is, a, is a, the sentence, For me, to live is, and a big blank. For me, to live is... Get you started. I'm going to give you some examples. Michael Jordan was here. He'd probably say, for me to live is what? Basketball. If Arnold Palmer was here, for me to live is? Golf. How about Carrie Underwood? For me to live is? Singing. Steve Jobs. For me to live is? Apple. Donald Trump. For me to live is? I hear a few different answers. (laughs) I don't want to get political on you. What about you, though? How would you complete that sentence? Better yet, how would those around you complete that sentence about you? If the people around you, how would they say for, for you to live is what? How would you fill in that blank? Would it be to work, to golf? Is it children, traveling? What is it? Everyone fills in the blank with something. So as we go through this passage, I want you to compare your philosophy of life with the Apostle Paul's. In this text, we're going to see Paul's purpose in life. We're going to see his passion. We're going to see the driving force behind everything he does. And then we're going to see three ingredients to his success. First, some context. If you read chapters 9 through 20 of the book of Acts, you're going to find that the recordings of the missionary trips of Paul are recorded there as he spreads the gospel. In some ways, it's not a pretty picture. You know what Paul went through. He's beaten, jailed, robbed, ran out of town, ridiculed, arrested. Just before he was beaten to death in Jerusalem, some Roman soldiers came and they, they arrested him. He languished in jail for two years. Then he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen, which he was, and so they put him on a ship, and after a violent storm and a shipwreck, he arrives in Rome, and that's where he is, in jail, awaiting Emperor Nero's decision. And while he's there, he writes what's known as the prison epistles. Philippians is one of those. So that's the context of him writing the letter to the Philippian church. The Philippian church was a church that was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey, The initial converts were Jewish, but they had come to be known as primarily a Gentile congregation. They were a poor church. We know that because 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that. They were being persecuted just like Paul was. Verse 27 through 30 of chapter 1 of our letter tells us that. Some of the reasons for Paul writing this letter was to thank them for their generous gift they had sent to him. They, even being a poor church, they had managed to give him quite a generous gift of money, and he was thanking them for that. He was writing to inform them of his condition and to warn them about false teachers. In the section where we're at now, we're going to break in as 
Paul is informing them of his condition and telling them not to worry about him. So let's read Philippians 1, 19 through 26. Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. I said we would see the passion or the purpose in Paul's life and three ingredients to his success. So first, the purpose or the passion in Paul's life. As we read through that scripture, did you pick up on the purpose or the passion in Paul's life? What was it? What was it? To magnify Christ. If you... I said the key verse was verse 21, to live as Christ. But right before that in verse 20, he specifically gives the purpose or the passion he had in life. He says that according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. So his passion, his purpose in life is to exalt Christ. Some versions say to magnify Christ or to glorify Christ. All those have the same the meaning, the same context. You could write a book about Paul's success and passion and purpose in the life of Paul. I'm sure plenty of people have written them because he is so focused on the goal that he just he puts blinders on and he goes after it. I'm reminded of chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize, which God, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was focused like an elite athlete on his purpose and passion in life, and that was to magnify Christ, to lift him up, to shine a light on Christ in everything that he did. And he was very successful at it. And this passage, we're going to see three reasons for that success. The first of which is that Paul was successful because he had the proper attitude. How important is attitude in one's life? You can change a lot of things in life, but your attitude, circumstances and things can dictate so much of what happens to you, but you control your attitude. Your attitude means so much in life. And they talk a lot about that in those self-help books that I was referring to earlier, but Paul's attitude was not based on a worldly you know, type of attitude. His attitude was grounded in Christ. And the first part of the attitude that I see, the proper attitude I see in this verses, is that he had confidence, an attitude of confidence. Remember, Paul's in prison, and yet he says in verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The word translated no is an emphatic word, which means without a doubt. It's certain. He is certain, 100% certain, that this is going to turn out for his deliverance. He was convinced of it. Now, the word translated deliverance comes from the word commonly translated salvation. Some versions say that, that he was going to turn out for his salvation or deliverance. 
Scholars have different opinions on the exact meaning and phrasing of this. Some think Paul's talking about going to be, he's going to be delivered or released from prison. Some think he's referring to being freed from sin and death through his faith in Christ. Others think he means delivered from execution. I definitely don't think it means that because um, he later on he talks about, he says, whether by life or by death. He wasn't concerned whether he lived or whether he died. But I think Paul is saying that his suffering would turn out for his good. That he would ultimately be delivered from it either now on earth or in the future in heaven. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about having confidence because he's just got a positive attitude. He's not trying to produce good karma. Paul has confidence because his confidence is in God. Remember, Paul's the one who wrote the famous words in Romans 8, 28. What's that say? I know all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purposes. Paul had confidence that what was happening to him now would turn out okay because he was doing God's will. And God was sovereign and ultimately everything would turn out the way God intended it to. In those self-help books I referred to earlier, they're big on the power of positive thinking, visualizing your success. They talk a lot about having a great self-image, those kind of things. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. Paul had a lot of confidence, but it wasn't that type of confidence. His confidence was not in himself, but in the Lord. Later in this letter, he writes in chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul had a lot of confidence, but it was in the sovereign, omnipotent Lord. The only confidence we should have is confidence in the Lord. A lot is taught on the need for self-esteem in our society. How did Paul feel about himself? Pretty low, didn't he? What did he say? I was a horrible, wicked sinner, the least of all the apostles. Yet he was not weak, unproductive Christian because of his feelings of unworthiness, was he? He had a security and a self-esteem, but it was grounded in who he was in Christ. He had confidence in himself as it pertained to doing the will of God. So not only did Paul have an attitude of confidence in all his circumstances, he also had an attitude of not being ashamed. Look at the verses again. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. What is shame? What would you say the definition of shame is? Anybody? Embarrassment. Guilt, maybe. Failure. When you don't measure up. Have you ever been really ashamed? I could share some examples, but I won't. (laughs) What determines when you feel shame about? In some respects, I think it's sometimes determined by what you love. If you love for men to think highly of you, you'll feel ashamed when they don't. When you want to be respected and you do something to lose that respect, you are ashamed. I remember my kids, when they were young, being ashamed by being driven around in our big blue station wagon. (laughs) It tells you what they respected and admired. It was more worldly automobile. They didn't like our little, our big blue, big blue they called it. Your children can embarrass you and bring you shame. They can do things that bring you shame. If you didn't love them, it wouldn't really matter. It wouldn't embarrass you if you didn't love and care for them. If shame is embarrassment, guilt, or failure of not measuring up, then the opposite might be honor. Paul was unusual. 
And all Christians should be so unusual. For Paul, the opposite of shame was not that he be honored, but that Christ be honored. Look at the verse again. It is my eager expectation and hope that I might in nothing be put to shame, but with all boldness Christ might be exalted in my body. He wanted Christ to be honored. In chapter 3 of this letter, in verse 8, Paul says, Whatever gain I have, I counted as loss for the, everything, as loss for this passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul cherished Christ more than anything. And when you love something so greatly, you want others to appreciate it as well. That's what it means to magnify Christ, to show the magnitude of his value. And when you value something so much, you're not going to be ashamed to proclaim it. What's the application for us? What do we value? What do we hold in high regard? What and who do we magnify? Are we ever ashamed? We might not feel ashamed, but there are times when we are hesitant, maybe, to, to share the, our faith. That brings us to the third attitude Paul displayed. We've seen the attitude of being confident, of being unashamed, and thirdly, an attitude of courage. Look at the rest of verse 20. That I might not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Paul was confident he was doing God's will. Therefore, he was unashamed. He was not embarrassed to go against everything the world around him was doing and saying. And that took great courage. Paul's life was like, I refer to it as going through a gauntlet. You know what a gauntlet is, don't you? You just go through and people take turns whacking you and beating you. That's what Paul's life was. You think about it. He just went from one persecution to another, one conflict to another. Sometimes I wonder if Paul just thought to himself, I've had enough. I'd like to just rest and have some peace. I don't see any indication that he thought like this. The life he lived took great courage. Paul desired and displayed an attitude of courage throughout his ministry up until his eventual martyrdom. And I could go to many passages that talk about that and display that life of courage. We know how many times he was beaten and stoned and thrown in prison. He never backed down, even when his life was threatened. And we don't have, no, we don't have any trouble spotting the attitude of courage in Paul's life, but what about ours? Do we have the courage to stand up to our parents, to our children? Many of us, I know, because we pray for them, have unbelieving family. Do we have the courage to stand up to them when it's necessary? to defend our faith, to defend the name of Christ? Do we have the courage to stand up to our friends and our co-workers? Do we have the courage to stand up at work? Many of you have unbelieving bosses and co-workers, and I know how hard that is. Terry and I have had family members call us fanatics. I've had a boss that used to call me preacher man, and he would laugh and make fun of me. Terry had a parent of one of her piano students that used to laugh at her and say, I can't believe you believe those fairy tales in the Bible. And she would defend them. So many times we've stood up, but being honest, I know that there are many times that I didn't, that I did not display the courage that Paul did, that I was silent when I shouldn't have been. If we are to be successful in our walk, in our ministry, in our lifting up of Christ, we have to have an attitude of courage and boldness. There's a second reason for Paul's success. He is successful because he has the proper attitude, but he's also successful because he has the proper support. If you look at the context of the attitudes that contributed to Paul's success, the attitude of confidence, of being unashamed, the attitude of being courageous and bold, they are shown to us as Paul prays for them. Look again at the beginning of verse 19. 
It says, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance. How? Through your prayers. You're familiar with the saying, behind every successful man is a successful woman or a great woman. There's a lot of truth in that. And you could go on to say that behind every great business, every great sports team, every great organization, every great ministry, there is a great support network in the background. You see it now in the political process. Support network is crucial to the campaigns. And so it is with any endeavor. Nothing really good, great, and successful happens in isolation. There's usually a support network behind all great accomplishments. And Paul's ministry success is no different. He has the support of those, first of all, who are praying for him. Now, we know that Paul believed in the sovereignty of God. We know that he had confidence that everything was going to turn out okay, that God's purposes would be carried out. Then why did he pray? Why did Paul pray? If he knew God was sovereign and everything was going to turn out the way God intended it to in the beginning anyway, why did he spend time praying? Why do we pray? Now, if we believe in the sovereignty of God and we know that everything's going to turn out the way he intended it, why do we pray? Does prayer really affect anything? Yes. There's a lot of different reasons. And number one, it's commanded, but it does affect things. I'm reminded of James 5.16. I memorized it a long time ago in King James. It says, The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much or accomplishes much. There's always a danger of those who believe in the sovereignty of God that we can sometimes become apathetic to prayer because we believe that God's going to work out His will no matter whether I pray or not. That's a, a wrong attitude, very wrong attitude. It's not scriptural. God is sovereign. Even in election, He could save anyone however He wants, but how does He save them? He saves them through people spreading the gospel, doesn't He? Sharing the gospel, the good news. And when you think about prayer, that's how God causes his providence to come about, by answering the prayers of his people. That's how he chooses to do it. And Paul knew this, so he was a man of prayer, and he always encouraged others to pray for him. There's several examples, but I found one in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to turn over there, I'll read you an example of this. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sense of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers." so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. This is just one example. There's many. But in here, according to Paul, he gives the credit for the favorable outcome to the prayers of the Corinthians. They were helpful to him, he said. Have you ever felt the prayers of God's people? You witnessed that firsthand and personally? I can remember when I was going through chemo treatments back when I was going through cancer, and I was never a big fan of Facebook, but my wife kept updating what was going on with me on her Facebook page, and many friends from here and from Kentucky and all around the country, actually, were responding and praying for me, and I was greatly encouraged by that fact that so many people were praying for me, and I contribute to the fact that I never was afraid, I was never disheartened, I had a complete sense of peace, I never lost my joy through four trips to the hospital, and through all that horribleness that I went through with that chemo, 
I felt the prayers of God's people. And it's just a fact that I know that was an answer to prayer. The fact that the great apostle desired prayers should encourage us to pray for each other, as we do, and especially our fellow believers who are in ministry. I know we, we need to stay up with them, what's going on, and pray for them. We should strive to keep their needs and concerns constantly lifting them up. Paul had the support of the Philippians' prayers, but just as importantly, he also had the support of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19 again. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The word provision describes a full supply. Everything you need will be given to you. The Holy Spirit is the believer's resource for everything. I wrote down the question, what are some of the provisions of the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit provide for us? Peace, comfort, guidance. I thought of power. Acts 1 tells the disciples that they would receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes. Romans 8 has a unique one. Even when we don't know how to pray, Romans 8 tells us the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Matthew 10 talks about guidance when it says, Do not worry about what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit, when that time comes, will give you the words. And then I thought, of course, the famous chapter in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things are provision. Did not Paul have those provisions? How could Paul love his enemies the way he did? That was provision of the Holy Spirit. How could he have joy when he was in prison? That was provision of the Holy Spirit. Did Paul witness peace? Did he witness patience? Yes. Self-control, he talked about it a lot. These are just some of the provisions that the Holy Spirit provides believers. And I was reading in John 14, 16, 17, it tells us that God will send us a helper, but it says that the world cannot receive this help. In the world of self-help books and motivational speakers, they can give you a lot of worldly advice on how to succeed in terms of what the world calls success, and some of it's very good advice. But there is a help for believers that the world cannot receive or even understand. There is a power that leads to our success that they do not possess. The prayers of other believers and the help of the Holy Spirit ensure our spiritual success. So when we are traveling the road of God's will and His purposes, we can be successful. We can be successful because we have supernatural help. We might not have the ability to be a professional athlete. We might not be able to be a really wealthy businessman, but we have the ability to be what God designed us to be. He's equipped us for whatever it is He desires for us to be. He empowers us for our purposes. And with that help and with the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the ability to be very successful in our endeavors and our passions and our life to exalt Christ, to be successful in the way that Paul defines success. And Paul was successful because he had this proper attitude, he had the proper support, and thirdly, he was successful because he had the proper perspective of life and death. I want to read verses 20 through 26 again. Actually, I'll just start with 21. We looked at 20 quite a bit. Starting with verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. 
Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, it's one thing that we all have in common, isn't it? We're all going to live and we're all going to die. Some people dread death. I was walking the other morning in the neighborhood where we live, and I passed a neighbor, and I uttered a common greeting. I just said, good morning, how are you? And I got a, sadly, an all-too-familiar comeback. He said, I'm doing great. I woke up this morning better than the alternative, he said. And if you think about that, you've probably heard many lines like that. You may have even said it. But that was not Paul's thought on the matter, was it? My neighbor looked at death as a threat as an undesirable thing. Paul had such a passion and purpose in his life to magnify the Lord that he had confidence that he would do that whether he lived or whether he died. Paul was not afraid to die. Death was not a threat to him. I read a quote recently by John Piper where he said, death is a threat to the degree that it frustrates our goals. Think about that. What he meant was that death threatens to rob you of what you value. We are sometimes scared of death because it will separate us from what we love, who we love, what we value. We are sometimes scared of death because I've heard people say things like, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm afraid of the manner in which I'll die. Paul didn't talk like that. He wasn't afraid to go through suffering or persecution because it was another opportunity to uplift, to magnify, to exalt Christ. He didn't see death as a frustration. He saw it as another opportunity to magnify Christ. So in some ways he was indifferent to which, you know, one the Lord gave him. That's why he could say to live is Christ, to die is gain. He understood about eternity. Paul didn't just stop there. He wasn't truly impartial like I just said because he said in verse 23, to die would be what? Very much better. That's an amazing statement. Think about that for a minute. Very much better. Make that personal. Dying is better than being married to my wife, Terry. Now, some people might say that in a different context. <laughs> but I love my wife and I don't want to leave her. Dying is better than hugging my beautiful grandchildren, Owen and Emma and Lily and Laney. Dying is better than being successful at work. Better than taking a great vacation. Yes, 10,000 million times better. Do we get that? One of the reasons Paul was so successful in his ministry was that he had a proper perspective on dying and spending eternity with our Lord. I am convinced, and you've heard me say it before, that I think we would all live differently if we could really get a grip on how temporal this life is versus eternity with God. If we could ever really get a grasp on that fact. And I saw an illustration recently that helped illustrate that to me. Some of you may have seen this, but I want you to pretend that this rope goes on forever. It never ends. It's pretty long, but it ends. Pretend that it doesn't end. This rope goes on and on and on. Now imagine that this rope is a timeline of your life that goes on and on and on into all eternity. It goes on and on all into eternity. This rope is your life. Now, if this rope represents your life, and it does because our lives are eternal, right? Then what section of it 
relates to our life on earth. Well, I've covered, I'll color this little section. This is our life here on earth, and the rest of it is eternity. Why is it then that we focus so much on this little section? Oh, I'm going to save, 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 so I can do this here. Or, you know, I'm going to worry about, I'm really worried about this part of my life right here. When we have all of this eternity that we could be worrying about, not worrying about, but living for. Think about that. We get consumed. I think we have a tendency to stay in our humanness. And we we have a tendency to not be able to comprehend that. But I think Paul grasped it better than most of us. And I think we have the ability, because I look around and I see Christians that aren't focused right here. Now, I do see a lot of Christians, including myself sometimes, that are focused really right here. But I also see some that are very focused on eternity. And the Bible teaches us that what we do here, it affects how we live here. And I think that's really important for us to remember. But we get so, so consumed by it. You know, we want to try to make this part of it so comfortable and make us ourselves so happy while we're in this temporal state. Paul didn't live like that. Paul understood that our time was short compared to eternity, and he lived his life in light of that truth. This life is short. We need to live like we understand that. It might cause some people around you to think that you're a little crazy. Someone might to say to you, are you stupid? I can't believe you're making that decision. That's going to affect you down the road. And we could say, no, you're the stupid one because it's going to affect you way down here forever and ever and ever. Life is short. For some of us here, it might end this year, this month, this day. We don't know. We need to have the proper perspective on life and death. Paul had that proper perspective, but he didn't just say, Lord, take me home, did he? Verse 22 says, if you choose to let me live, it means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24 says, to live on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He realized that God was not done with him yet. He had some more magnifying of Christ to do. I came across a poem that's written on a headstone in a cemetery in Montgomery, Alabama. It reads, you may have heard this, Under the clover and under the trees, here lies the body of Jonathan Pease. Pease ain't here, only the pod. Pease shelled out, went home to God. Do you fear death? You shouldn't if you're a Christian. Death is just a vehicle that carries us home. Many years ago, there was a great southern evangelist, John Rice, and he was a kind of a fire and brimstone preacher. He was preaching in a little small town just south of Dallas, Texas. As was his custom, he was preaching really hard against sin, especially at this point, it was against the bootleggers that were bringing illegal liquor into the small town. Eventually, the powers that be decided that they would try to get rid of this pesky evangelist, and they, they sent him a note that said, Stop preaching or we will kill you. You know what his response was? I love his response. He said, you can't threaten me with heaven. You can't threaten me with heaven. Death is not something to dread, but something wonderfully better than this life. And there's a great truth to remember here as well. You will not die. You cannot die until the appointed time that God has ordained for you. I know that's sometimes difficult, especially when it's a young person or a child. But if they are a believer, we can take comfort in knowing that they have lived out the life God has intended for them. God makes no mistakes. And Paul confirms here that in some ways he would rather depart, but God has other plans for him. His purpose on earth is not yet done. 
As I was thinking about that, I thought the best example of that was Christ himself. Remember the conversation between Pilate and Jesus in John 19 where Pilate says, he was kind of flabbergasted by Jesus' response and he said, don't you know I, I hold the power of life and death? You remember what Jesus said to him? You have no power if God not granted it to you. And then later in John 19 on the cross, he lifted up his eyes towards heaven and said, it's finished. And then he died. It is finished meant that the work that God had given him to do was now done. It goes hand in hand, you know, giving up. He gave up his life at the appropriate time. And God won't let us leave until the appropriate time. Paul goes on to describe the fruitful labor that he had left to do. Verse 25 says, convinced of this, I know that I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So what's the fruitful labor Paul had left to do? To help them with their progress of their faith and their joy. And we could talk a lot about that, but I want you to see the link between faith and joy. They go hand in hand. I found a few other verses that Paul says something similar. In Romans 15, 13, as he prays for the church, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In other words, believing is the means to joy. Joy comes from a confident trust in Christ and His promises. He said to the Corinthians, describing his ministry in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, he says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. You shouldn't have faith without joy. Joy comes from a confident, hopeful trust in the promises of God, which are in Christ Jesus because of his death and his resurrection. That's why Paul ends the text in verse 26 with a reference to glorifying in or boasting in Christ. Christians should be the most joyful people in the world. Have you ever seen a Christian that just does not have any joy? I worry about them because that should not go hand in hand. Christians should be the most joyful people ever. We have so much more than unbelievers to be joyful about. Some commentators refer to Philippians as a commentary on joy. Paul stresses it a lot in these verses and throughout his letter. Paul was one of the most successful men who ever lived. His accomplishments are too many to list. He was successful because he had the proper attitude. He was confident, not in himself, but he was confident in the powerful God, omnipotent God. He was unashamed of his new identity in Christ. He sought to honor Christ, to magnify him above all else. He was bold, courageous, fearless. He had the proper attitude. We need to model that attitude. Paul also had the proper support. He knew the power of prayer. He prayed. He encouraged others to pray with him and for him. And he enlisted the help of the Holy Spirit. He knew that he could do nothing within his own power. And neither can we. We need the Spirit's help. And we need each other's help. We need the prayer of God's people. Probably, but last but not least, Paul had the proper perspective on life and death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. Everything I do is about serving and magnifying and lifting up Christ. But when God is through with me, to die is so much better. What awaits after this mortal temporal life is over is so much better we can't even imagine. But there is one caveat. For one to be able to say to die is gain, one has to be able to say to live is Christ. Most of us here are believers, I'm sure. But if you haven't come to the place where Christ is everything to you, or if you're not living in the way that Christ is everything to you, you won't be able to say die is gain. If you're still consumed with that little bitty blue section of the lifetime frame, if that's your focus, if you love this life, 
then you're going to fear death. You won't want this life to ever end. If that's you, then you need to repent, to reach out to the Lord. He's the only one who can grant you a life that looks forward to death, but also gives us a purpose in living. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Father, it's good to be here this morning in your word, reminding ourselves of the temporalness of life. Help us to model the life that Paul lived. Help us to be confident in you. Father, to be bold and courageous and unashamed to witness and to share Christ with all around us. Father, help us to understand our position, Father, as weak, ineffective, without your Holy Spirit's power and provision, we are nothing. But with it, Father, we are everything. We are able to succeed in all of the things that you would have us do when we entrust ourselves to you and the Holy Spirit's power and the prayers of your people, we can be successful. And Father, most of all, help us to really get a grasp on the temporalness of this life. Father, and if we do that, it will affect all the decisions that we make, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend every waking moment, Father. Even when we're entertaining and recreating father it'll be done with an attitude of glorifying you and exalting you and that's father what you want we father we pray that you would help us in this endeavor in jesus name amen